Hello, and welcome to Mysteries, Monsters, and Mayhem. This is the podcast about murders and so much more. We will talk about anything strange, anything that goes bump in the night, and pretty much anything that amuses us. And on that note, we need to mention that this podcast is not safe for work or delicate ears, so do be discerning who you listen to it with. We also want to let you know that you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, so look for us there. I am Shannon Lawrence. I am a writer, mom, wife, student, procrastinator, and you can find me at thewarriormuse.com. My name is M.B. Partlow. I am a writer, an avid reader, an organizer extraordinaire, a mom, two kids, cats, and a dog, <laughs> and I call bullshit when I see it. Hello. <laughs> so today we have Laura Hayden as our guest. And she's got a story that she gets to share with us. So we're doing an Alabama theme today because, yay! <laughs> because that's where Laura is from and that's where her story is. Were you born there? Yes, I was. Okay. What city were you born in? Birmingham. Aha! You were born in the big city. Big city. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to have you introduce yourself and then we'll chat. Okay. Hi, I'm Laura Hayden. I'm waving at the camera as if anyone can see me. Born and raised in, Bur- in Birmingham, Alabama. My husband joined the Air Force to see the world. And we finally got to Colorado. And I, I wanted to stick, but we had to come back two more times before we finally stuck. So he's retired. and We live here permanently now. I'm a, a multi-published author. I've got 14, 15 full-length novels, half dozen or so uh, short stories published from a wide variety of, of publishers, Random House, uh, Harlequin, Kensington. So I, I go back to the traditional publishing and now I'm in indie publishing. I own Author Author, which is a online bookstore tailored more toward dealing with authors than anything else and good customers. And uh, I, I know these two miscreants from Pikes Peak Writers. We've all been a slave to, to that particular organization for many years. Oh, yes. <laughs> And are all of your stories romance or no? Or yeah. you, some are no. mystery, aren't they? Mystery. I, I've written I've written romantic suspense, uh, romantic comedy. Uh, I've written mystery. Uh, actually, I uh, was a ghostwriter or a credit ghostwriter for Susan Ford, President Ford's daughter. We wrote a two book series, mystery series together about the first daughter as a sleuth. Ooh. I've done I work for hire for companies under my own name, so I've been lucky. Everything I've done so far has been under, has included my name, sometimes in the really, really tiny print, but uh, I've gotten credit for everything I've written, which is. Now you were a ghostwriter with somebody very interesting, but I don't know if you're credited for, you are credited. I am credited in that. So it's not like I can hide it. I (laughs) co-wrote a book with Ice-T's wife, Coco. That's right. Of the Ice Loves Coco fame. Yep. Um, yeah, we, we we wrote a book together <laughs> called Angel. It was uh, I was given the synopsis. Let's just put it that way, and I fleshed the story out, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> How was that project? It was interesting. I let me just say I love Susan Ford. <laughs> she was so wonderful to work with. I really enjoy. We're still on Facebook together, you know, but. All right. (laughs) I love Susan. (laughs) And you've been, you've been with Pikes Peak Writers since the beginning. Yeah. 1993 when we launched the first thing, working with the library. 
the Pikes Peak Library District here and uh, the Kennedy Center Imagination Celebration. That's right. Uh, they were the, the two driving forces behind it and the uh, the infamous Jimmy Butler. Yes. Who uh-huh. is the man who got it all started. I, that's how I started and I've never gotten away from it since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once you get in, it's hard to, it's hard to get out. <laughs> Not that you have to get out. I moved 1,400 miles away and still couldn't get out. That's, that's true. true. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's like uh, people in, uh, what's the movie? You just talked about Amityville. Oh, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Give me another hint. I was in California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Yes. You that's move right. to another house and the entity follows you. That's yeah. right. See, it came around. It took, my brain is not fully engaged this morning, apparently. Sorry. <laughs> And there are some people listening who are going to say, wait, you mean sometimes it is engaged? That happens. <laughs> it does. I've seen it. <laughs> I reserve judgment. <laughs> so we keep try to keep the chit chat briefer when we have a guest, since we have three stories to get through. We do. So do we, <laughs> and, and we're not to ask about books. So <laughs> do we, I, are you comfortable giving a little background about how you knew the person you're going to be talking about? Yeah, and yeah, I, about I, them? I, I am. Uh, I um, he owned a bookstore in uh, Montgomery, and I walked in one day and said, "Hey, could you use some help?" And ended up part time. So literally, I met him that day, and he hired me. Nice. <laughs> and I've been in love with bookstores ever since. Yeah, he kind of gave you that. That was like the springboard to you now being. Author, author. To, yeah, I, I, everything I knew about running a bookstore, I learned from that man. Nice. I really, truly did. Okay. Well, do, do we you... want to just jump right in or? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and All start? Right. All right. Because it'll be, a, it'll take a minute to get to my Alabama connection. Because <laughs> I am big on, as regular listeners know, I'm big on the mayhem and the mysteries, not so much on the murder. And but I am. All about, about the, the murder, murder. <laughs> with hopefully a side of mayhem. <laughs> I like the really wacky stuff. I, I search out the weird stuff. So I'm going to start. I'm going to tell you a story about snake handling. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and I want to. I'm going to call out the Florida News Times website because it is so poorly written. They don't even have complete sentences. Because that was one of the sites that popped up as I was researching, because I didn't want to do just the one story. I wanted to do a little bit of background on snake handling in general, because like me, some of you might not know a whole lot about it other than isn't that practiced in the rural South, which yes, it is. So there's a man named George Went Hensley, who is credited with starting the whole in the U.S. in Christian religions. That should be clear. Um, snake handling is part of religious practice into the Church of God Holiness, which I was surprised to learn is an association of autonomous Christian Methodist congregations. Methodist. Right. That, that. <laughs> <laughs> Methodist. is priceless because I was raised Methodist and we are just dull as dishwater. I mean, yeah, I not, guess I thought Southern Baptist right? would be associated. So no, I, our Methodist, you could sing and you could dance. Yes. And you didn't drink in the church, but. (laughs) So anyway, this guy, Hensley, really started getting this popularized uh, when he was 30 in 1910. So he traveled around the southeastern U.S., basically pimping the practice. 
and he eventually started the first holiness movement church, which required snake handling as evidence of salvation. So if you truly had the Holy Spirit, you could handle venomous snakes and even drink their poison without harm. I would like to note that he did die in July of 1955 after being bitten by a rattlesnake. (laughs) Well, yeah, I bet that was rare. There are a lot of these stories that end that way. And then he got bitten and died. (laughs) Just (laughs) there's a couple of famous ones that and there is some question. So he's like the first guy you read about when you start to look up snake handling. And now the scholars are thinking he didn't actually invent it, maybe, but he was key in making it popular. He was the guy who was out on the ground, going town to town, preaching it, acting it, getting others to believe in it. So it's mostly centered in the Appalachian Mountains, which everybody immediately thinks West Virginia, Um, but it occurs in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Kentucky, North and South Carolina, West Virginia, and Tennessee. So the South then. Noticeably, (laughs) not Florida. No mountain. (laughs) That could be. And there are two... There, well, uh, this was a few years ago when this article was written. There were at that time two snake handling churches in oh, Winnipeg, up in Canada, huh. in the middle of no. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, but Canadians are too, anyway, too polite to handle snakes. I don't know. Well, I, I think being polite is probably helpful. I, well, yeah, I'm probably. curious when you, if you get to it, okay, how they keep them docile or whatever. Cause like you have the, famous rain ceremony or whatever. But what they do is they gather those, the rattlesnakes and they put them in like cornmeal and stuff. So they're well fed. Yeah. And then they're super docile because <laughs> just that would be the smart thing to do. Okay. Almost every state where it emerged outlawed it as soon as it became popular, except for West Virginia. Anything goes. <laughs> yeah. Apparently um, it's still a hot button issue. Uh, with the freedom of religion people, and even the ACLU has defended it, the okay. American Civil Liberties Union. It was a felony. It's a religion. Yeah, it was a felony in Georgia, but jurors would always refuse to convict because it carried the death sentence. Whoa. Yeah, it was. That was, <laughs> but this was in 1941, and it was after a seven year old child died from a snake bite. Okay. But yeah, it seems to me like, I guess then it's so illegal because they want them to not hurt other people. Because I was going to say, if you're going to put them to death anyway, why not let them play with rattlesnakes and do it themselves? (laughs) Well, so you can handle the snakes because you are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are bitten, it could be a sign that you aren't faithful enough and the congregation will pray over you. You don't get to call a doctor. The congregation will pray over you. And if you don't spontaneously recover... They assume it was your time and God has called you home and you would have died regardless of whether that snake bit you or not. Okay. That's fair. (laughs) Yeah. It's also, (laughs) strangely enough, it is also usually associated with speaking in tongues. And if anybody's unfamiliar with that, it's where people utter sounds in a divine language unknown to the speaker. I'm not even going to comment any further there. Robert, holy rolling. What? That's holy rolling. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And I should know that when you at these, what's it called? Not a ceremony at these services, it is not the entire congregation handling snakes. They don't like pass them through the whole church. And it's it's only a few. It's only a very small percentage. And the non-participants are sitting back. They're not actually sitting anywhere uh, near yeah. the snake. <laughs> I would be well, like, all right, you do what you got to do up there. I'm going to chill back I here. would be on a ladder. You know, <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. And children are not usually allowed to be involved. 
So a couple of things before I get to Alabama, I'm going to, we're going to get, we're going to take a detour through Kentucky and Tennessee in July of 2008. Oh, wait, I forgot to say I had a, oh, in 2013, NPR estimated there were still about 125 churches that engage in snake handling, but noted that they are notoriously private. So these aren't people getting billboards, you know, like the mega churches. <laughs> so on. there won't be some snake handling billboards in Kansas. Much as with I with all the other ones. As much as I would hope for that, no. In July of 2008, there were 10 people arrested and 125 venomous snakes confiscated as part of an undercover sting operation. So Pastor Gregory Coots of the Full Gospel Tabernacle in Jesus' name in Middlesboro, Kentucky, was arrested and 74 snakes seized from his home as part of the sting operation. Right? <laughs> so his son, Jamie, Jamie Coots, was cited in 2013 for illegal possession and transportation of venomous snakes when three rattlesnakes and two copperheads were discovered in his vehicle during a vehicle check in Knoxville, Tennessee. Can you imagine pulling somebody over for a broken taillight? And it's like, what the fuck? You have a bunch of snakes in your car. I'm just going to go get back in my cruiser. You yeah. had a lovely day. <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. Good luck with that. We'll see you down the road. <laughs> he did. He did have an op-ed published in the Wall Street Journal making the argument for U.S. constitutional protection regarding religious freedom, especially freedom to practice the unique variety of religion found in snake handling churches. And he died the next year from a snake bite. <laughs> <laughs> and then he died from snake Yeah, that's now the next. Okay, now we're coming around to Alabama. Oh, <laughs> here it comes. I, I, I get there. I sometimes take an interesting scenic route, but I always get there. So 1991, uh, Glenn Summerford was the pastor of the Church of Jesus with signs following, which was near Scottsboro, Alabama. Do you know Scottsboro? Yeah. How big is it? It's fairly small. It's the home of the Scottsboro Boys. That was a, a major uh, civil rights problem. Yes. I remember here reading about that. Yeah. So, of course, he was a snake handler. He said snake handling church had saved him from a life of crime. And indeed, his criminal record does indicate like a dozen or more aliases he's gone under in his life. Um, so, but the problem was he forced his wife, Darlene, to put her hand in a cage of rattlesnakes after accusing her of having an affair. Darlene, on the other hand, said that there was another woman in his life who he wanted to marry. And he figured Darlene dying of snake bite was just the easiest way to get rid of her. <laughs> So she testified that he hit, this goes back to how do they keep the snakes? They keep them in cages, but he hit it. He banged on the cage of snakes with a big metal pipe to get them all riled up and angry, grabbed her by the hair and told her if she didn't stick her hand in the cage, he was going to stick her face in the cage. Oh, I'd stick my hand in the cage. So she did stick her hand in the cage and was bitten. She was able to get away from him and get medical help. That's how this all came to light. Now, a female witness for the defense said that Darlene had gotten her husband drunk and had intended to kill him with a snake, which is how she got bitten. However, the prosecution posited that this woman had a relationship with <laughs> him, and there were a lot of witnesses backing up that she did spend the night over there at his house. Yeah. So, yeah, he did. So in 1992, the jury convicted him and he got a 99 year sentence 
Then he got another 30 years tacked on when he unsuccessfully tried to run from a work detail in 2002. He was free for approximately 45 minutes. <laughs> he just walked off the work detail and like hid behind a tree. I don't know. He didn't do it very well. He wasn't out for very long. Now, the minimum release date was set at February 4th of this year, 2021. So I went and looked and looked and looked and looked. I'm in the Alabama criminal records. I'm looking in the prison records. I cannot find any record of a hearing this year, but the hearing last, he, he did have one in 2020 and he was denied. So they, are, they weren't going to let him out anytime soon. I'm good. <laughs> I hope. He doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's going to run around attacking other people with snakes, but he might. But he might. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know his life. But if, (laughs) and I did purposefully keep this one a little bit shorter so we'd have enough time. But I do want to say if anybody is interested in the topic, specifically this man's story, this, this whole incident, there is a book called Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington and another one called The Serpent. The Serpent and the Spirit, Glenn Summerford's story by Dr. Thomas Burton. And last year, 2020, HBO came out with a documentary about it, and it's called Alabama Snake, which sounds like a drink, but yeah, it does. Actually, I'll have an Alabama snake. (laughs) And I bet that would leave you with one hell of a hangover the next day. I would hope so. (laughs) So that is my tiny little contribution to the the Alabama theme for today. Yeah. The snake handlers. Lovely. What time what time today did you prepare that? No. I just, <laughs> <laughs> We're both classic procrastinators. So, I did get one done. I took a final and finished a class on Friday and then I prepared one of them that night another one last night yeah. so look at me i spread spread it out over two days we are notorious for finishing it up the morning yeah. <laughs> in our own variations <laughs> usually it means i went to bed at <laughs> 7 a.m and, and i got up got at 5 30 started well, i gotta finish writing this one up okay colors. yeah are fascinating they are and it's been it's such a cultural thing because you've seen it in x-files you've seen it in different movies and it's always kind of well and beyond that snake handling in general encompasses a lot of different nations i mean if you think about Mm -hmm. the snake charmers and what is it india yes for example although the secret there is they defang those poor little things and then they slowly die but (laughs) and this then when i was looking up on Wikipedia, of course, my source, my beginning source for everything, they did make a big distinction between these are people who handle snakes based on what's written in the Christian Bible. This is not based on any people who worship snakes, for Mm, example. It's not those people. (laughs) Not those people. They're just saying, look at me. I'm not dead yet. I must be full of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You're full of something. (laughs) Whatever you need to tell yourself. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Laura. You're up. Okay. Well, my story is a personal one to a degree. As I said, I grew up in Alabama and my husband did too. And uh, he was there and we joined the Air Force and we assumed we'd be getting some sort of far-flung assignment. He moved us from Birmingham to Montgomery, Alabama, 90 (laughs) miles due south. I didn't have to change my driver's license, my car tag. I knew the answer to our war eagle roll tide. It's roll tide. (laughs) (laughs) 
I knew my I knew my uh, Alabama politics, so it was a real nice introduction into the Air Force family, not to have to learn a whole new state in identification. I was working for the telephone company. I was an engineer with the telephone company, and I thought, well, okay, you know, this was before the divestiture, so it was AT and T. I worked for South Central Bell. I said, I can find a job in Montgomery. There's telephones everywhere. <laughs> except for the fact that uh, my area of expertise was being done for Montgomery and my old office in Birmingham. So there was absolutely no jobs in Montgomery at all. So I went on leave of absence. Technically, I still am on leave of absence because I didn't pay work otherwise because I thought, sure, they'd come up with a position. They never did. So I'm bored. I'm sitting around the house. So I went down to this little, nice little bookstore called Trading Books, about a mile or two away from the, from the neighborhood. And I started looking for reading material. And I overheard the owner talking about having problems with employees. I said, well, I'm looking for some part-time work. And so he says, okay, well, what do you know about? And he started quizzing me on books and authors. And because I'm a reader, I knew all the answers. Thank God. And he hired me on the spot to work two days a week. His name was Donald Berquist, B-E-R-G-Q-U-I-S-T. And I soon learned that Don was really a character. He, I had no idea how old he was. You know how it is when you're young. I was 24 and he was 44 and that was ancient. (laughs) But he had an assortment of jobs. Uh, He owned this bookstore. He had two locations to serve you, 100,000 titles in stock. He also owned a bookstore before that that had gone under. And I learned never diversify into sundries. They take up space. The markup's lousy. They don't sell and you can't return them. <laughs> so that's why my bookstore never had a lot of sundries. And one thing is he used to run the concessions at the Alabama prison system. More about that later. Yeah. Now, Don had this habit of hiring hard luck cases. And I can really attest to that, judging by some of the people I worked with. <laughs> of course, Folks might try to say that about me, but I only started out as a part-time employee. And six weeks later, I was the manager of the store, and he and his wife had gone to Europe for a prolonged vacation. And when they left the store, it was $4,000 in debt, and they returned six weeks later, there were $4,000 in the black. And I had wired them money several times during the trip. So after that, I was the golden girl. I could do whatever I wanted, because I had literally saved his business by being smart. Nice. He said I was the only exception he'd ever made to his hard luck hiring rule. And I'm really glad he made that exception and said that to me. You know, everybody else is really crazy, but you're really good. I worked there from March 1980 to about April 82. And then I worked some on and off time. I'd had a baby and I'd bring the baby in and I'd do comic book grading. I'm a comic book grader back in the old days until we finally moved away in the summer of 83. So let's jump to October of 84. I no longer live in Alabama, but I've been in Texas for a year and a half. Uh, And during the time you go back home for holidays, Mm -hmm. we we were visiting family in Birmingham and Tuscaloosa, but we never had any reason to go through Montgomery. So working at Trading Books was a pleasant memory, but not a connection that I maintained. I didn't go visit anybody. So I'll say that everything I've been talking about now, I gleaned from these meager recollections of mine, newspaper reports, and more importantly, court records, lots and lots of court records. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. So October 1983, Don and his wife, Hanalor, she was German. I believe they had met in Mexico, uh, gotten married. They decided to renovate the kitchen and needed some carpentry work. 
Don looked in the bulletin, which was sort of a thrifty nickel sort of tabloid to find someone who could handle building cabinets, including a china cabinet. And he found the name and the number of a man named Joe Hooks. Joseph Bryant Hooks, Joe, was 32. He was a laborer by day and a carpenter on the weekends and after work. Later, he said that as to this particular job, he'd always worked on a handshake deal. But Don made him sign a written contract because he was paying half the month money up front. He's going to pay him $2,500 for the job and paid him $1,250 in advance, and he made him sign paperwork. The uh, contract stipulated that Hooks should begin work on October 3rd, 1984, and to complete the job within 20 days, and then he'd get the rest of the money. Well, 20 days came and went, and Joe hadn't started the job. His excuse was he was having problems obtaining construction materials. So now it's Friday, November 16th, 1984. Joe calls Don and his wife, Hannah Lore, around at about 9.10 in the morning and asks them to meet at his house to look and approve some samples for the job. When they get there, he's not home, but there's a note saying he'll be right back. So they wait for him. What they don't know is that Hooks has blown all the money on debts and drugs. He had a lifelong addiction, according to his brother, starting when he was 13, sniffing glue. In high school, he used and dealt drugs. After high school, he joined the army. It was the Vietnam era, but received an undesirable discharge. Now, that's different. That, that's sort of a mid-level one. Uh, it's administrative discharge, which are under conditions other than honorable. It's usually given to military members who don't qualify for an honorable discharge. But with an undesirable discharge, there is no punishment, not like dishonorable. Okay, okay. It's sort of that, that mid-level. So that morning, Hooks went to the place where he works. Uh, he worked at a place called Home Improvers. And I can't find anything about it, but I'm pretty sure it was one of those construction workers for hire type companies located in one of the older homes in downtown Montgomery. Hooks picks up his work companion, a man by the name of Paul Seary, at 7.15 a.m. and heads to a job set site in Prattville. Now, Prattville is a bedroom community just north of Montgomery, about eight miles away. But once they get there, Hooks tells Paul, but he has to go to court and he drives away. So Hooks heads to the home of Linda Norris around 8.30 a.m. He'd done some carpentry work for Linda and still had a key to her house. He also knew she wouldn't be home and that she kept a gun in her bedside table. Great. He unlocked the front door, found and took the the loaded gun and locked the house back up. Later, we'll learn that he took four hits of speed and smoked two joints at some point during this time, which apparently was his normal. So he took some uppers and some downers. Yeah. So, you know, he was just in a whirl. <laughs> Who needs coffee arrived, and a bran muffin? <laughs> when he arrives at his own house, he sees Dawn and Hamlar waiting for him. And he shows them some Michael samples for approval. And they don't like the color. So he offers to take them to his, air quotes, warehouse to look at some other samples there. And they say, okay. And they all pile into Don's 1977 Chevy Caprice. <laughs> which is an ugly brown station wagon that I so remember. It's because he could always put square boxes in the back of that thing. We had boxes and boxes of books at his house and in the store. And they were transformed because he could fit the exact number of boxes in the back of this old square station wagon of his. So it's a 10-minute trip that ends up on a dirt road about three to four miles outside the city of Montgomery into the county of Montgomery. They make a couple of turns and end up at what looks like abandoned houses but no warehouse. 
Hope pulls out Linda Norris's 38 revolver and shoots Don twice, one point blank against his head and another in the chest. Hooks oh. was in the passenger seat. Don was driving. Hanalor was in back. Later, Hooks said, the only thing I that I thought would resolve the problem, the financial problem, I didn't need, know of any other way to get out of it. Money was all gone. It's not even that much money. That's the thing that kills me about in, stories like this. In 84, my mortgage was $400 a month. Yeah. Mm. So $1,250 was a good amount. Then he turns in his seat and he, sh- and he shoots Hanalor. And he said, that's the one I hated. I didn't want to shoot her. I really didn't. I didn't know any other way to get out of it. I think I shot her twice. I think it was twice. I don't remember. Oh. And then later on, he says, I didn't want to do it because she reminded me of my mother. Oops. But you notice he shot her in the head, the chest, and the throat. <laughs> so he drags Don's body out of the car and does the same with Hanalor, but drags her about 25 yards away. It's like he didn't want to be close to her. He goes back to Don's body, takes his wallet, then drives off in that station wagon and abandons it in a parking lot of a discount store, which is about two and a half miles away up at the main drag. Uh, there's a circle that goes around Montgomery, and this was the su- Southern Boulevard. So it was right. He came up in the south to the first real congested area where there'd be parking lots full of cars. He says he doesn't remember this. And in the questioning, the police said, well, you don't remember almost hitting a pedestrian in that parking lot? Apparently, he made himself, he caused a lot of attraction to himself, attention. But at that point, no one did anything. He takes off on foot and heads back home. He, he leaves the car, abandons the car, takes off on foot and goes back home, which, as I learned, according to the police, what he's talking about is, oh, it's so far away. And I had to stop and pant and catch my breath. It was less than a mile. <laughs> I actually pulled up. I found his address and I know where he abandoned the car. It's like, what are you talking about? You were so up on drugs. You don't remember anything. But once he gets to his house, he wipes the blood off his hands and disposes the paper towels and a trash can near his truck. Stupid thing. Number one, mm-hmm. he goes inside and changes his clothes and washes the bloody ones, as well as washing the gun. What in the... <laughs> I don't think he did it in the washing machine, but he washed the gun. He washed um, it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So once he gets his back into clean clothes, he tries to take the gun back to Linda's house, but her neighbors are around. So he drives around, he, he, he stops off, and I'm pretty sure it's at McDonald's because that was the only place there at the street he mentioned, and tried to eat and really couldn't do it. And he finally gets back to Linda's house, and the coast is clear, and he puts the gun back. He heads back to the Prattville job site as he's driving. Here, hears on the radio that two bodies have been found. Now he's really freaked. He goes to the job and tells Paul, the guy he dropped off that morning, he told him that he had a court case and uh, it hadn't been called yet. So uh, I've got to go back. I just came to drive all the way here just to tell you that. <laughs> then he drives around and listens to the radio. He doesn't want to be far away from the radio because he wants to know what's going on. He finally stops the payphone and gets to Paul and says, look, I'm coming back. He'll pick you up. Don't worry about it. Because if he did come back and pick up Paul, Paul would have been stranded, called the company for a ride, and the company would have found out that Joe had Joe Hooks had not been at work all day long. Ah. So meanwhile, back at the abandoned house on the dirt road, as luck would have it, an ABC agent was prowling the area. Now, the ABC is the Alcohol Beverage Control Board. And they oversee the sale of all liquor in the state of Alabama. You want to buy booze, you got to buy it from a state-run liquor store, a.k.a. an ABC store. 
There are no package stores with anything other than beer. It was like that in Virginia when I lived there. ABC still like that. (laughs) And I was like, well, yeah, I probably still is, but I'm like, ABC, what the heck is that? (laughs) The whole beverage control. Yep. Uh, The agent head was there because he'd been told that juveniles have been drinking near these abandoned houses. And he was investigating the area. And he, when he found the man's body and checked for pulse, he realized Don was dead and radioed the ABC board who called the cops. He drove out of the area to go wait for the cops because it would be hard to tell them how to get there. You know, take this dirt road, that dirt road. So he goes back out to, to one of the main roads and waits for the cops and then brings them back to the scene of the crime. And while there, he discovers a woman's shoe and then he looks around and he finds Hanalore and she's still alive. Oh, oh, she's Based moving, but not talking. So paramedics, ambulance, you know, the whole Magilla. She's taken to the hospital, which bothers me in one aspect. In Montgomery in those days, they had three hospitals, two relatively new ones and one really old, old, old Catholic hospital. And they had the ER of the day. And they rotated which hospital ran the ER for the day. And... By my calculations, they had to drive past two hospitals to get to the ER of the day at a very old kind of rundown Catholic hospital in downtown. I didn't even remember the hospital, let's put it that way. And I lived there for three years. So because there is no, there's no car, he's, Joe took the car and abandoned it. Don has no wallet. So they don't know who he is. But my theory is because he worked with the prison system, he'd been fingerprinted as an employee. And they check the fingerprints and they figure out who he is from the fingerprints. Now, now they know who he is and they're looking for his car and they find it around 11 o'clock at night. This was done between 10 and noon. The ABC man found the body around, I think it was 1240. They finally find the car around 11 p.m. that night. In it, they find uh, the woman's purse. Now they know that's Hanalore. Broken pieces of pearl necklace. She had a pearl necklace on. Parts of it was embedded into her skin. Other parts of it were in the back of the car. And the most important thing, two letters not written in English sitting on the dashboard. They also found a spent projectile in the left front seat of the car. It's these letters that really broke the case in many ways. They were written in Spanish and Hanalor was German. So... They uh, the cops turned to the DA's office because the DA had a translator interpreter on staff who was born in Puerto Rico. And it turned out these were letters outbound. These were letters she was sending out and they hadn't gotten to the post office yet. One was going to a friend of hers who lived in Mexico and the other was going to one of her nieces. And both letters mentioned a problem the Burke was having with an individual who had not done work he was hired for. Uh-huh. The letters also mention a former bookstore manager who owed them money who was fired, but I promise you it wasn't me. (laughs) I don't know who it was. It was somebody who was hired after I left the area. So the cops draw a list of 22 names and business associations and neighbors. I never got a call from the cops, but a manager of the other store who knew me did. And she called me that night because the detectives are trying to figure out who would hurt Don or Hanalore. And she asked me. I said, well, you know, Don used to run the prison concessions. Now, I'm pretty sure it was just the one at Draper Correctional, which is uh, a men's prison in Elmore, Alabama, just north of Montgomery. And concession sells cigarettes, soft drinks, personal items to prisoners. 
Don always joked about dealing with the Dixie or Alabama mafia. I thought it was a joke. Until later, I learned it was a loosely based criminal organization started in the 60s in the Deep South with residential crimes, spread to the 70s with the movement of alcohol, drugs, and fencing stolen property, and the 70s and the late 80s known for carrying out contract killings. Oh. oh. But I don't think anyone ever heard my mafia story <laughs> because if they did, it was too late. They already figured out who the guy was by the time it, it got fed to the cops. If she ever told them, you know, this happened on Friday, Saturday morning, Hooks goes to Paul's house. His buddy says he'd lied about going to court. He had family problems and been driving around all day drinking beer. Then he told Paul that some people he'd been working for had been killed and he was a suspect. So he begs Paul and another guy to say they were working with him all day on Friday. Paul says, sure. Why not? Well, the cops get to Hooks name around 11 p.m. that Sunday night on November 18th and call him and ask him to come to the station. 11 o'clock at night, they say, you need to come in. We we really want to talk to everybody as soon as possible. And he was just whatever number on the list of 22 people. At that point, he was not a prime suspect. But another Mark Carr happened to have been in his neighborhood and followed him to the precinct because they didn't want him to run. So they just trailed him that he might might or might not have noticed the cop behind him following him all the way to the to the police headquarters. Okay, so not only had they translated these letters now by Sunday, they'd gone to the house and saw that the kitchen was in mid-renovation. So everything substantiated. So Hooks says, well, I, I was working at Prattville with Paul on Friday. And so they show him a composite, uh, a composite photo and say, do you recognize this person? I have a feeling that was a ruse because that drawing doesn't come up anywhere in court documents. It doesn't come up anywhere in any other interrogation. I think to see what he would say. And he says, well, I don't recognize him. And they take his fingerprints and photographs. However, while he, this is like two o'clock in the morning now that they've had this informal talk with him, you know, no rights read. This is just, this isn't an interrogation. This is just information. But while he's at the police station, the cops receive a phone call from a woman who tells them that Hooks worked with her ex-husband, this was the other guy, and with Paul, and Hooks had asked both of them to be his alibi for the morning in question. So the two guys agreed to go to the police station, and Paul had heard about Don and Hanalore, and he was suspicious of Hooks. He tells them everything. <laughs> Good. Yeah. The cops read Hooks's Miranda rights, tell Paul sold him out. And exactly what he said, and hooks folds. But then that's when the dominoes all line up and just start toppling over. His soon-to-be ex-wife allows the police to search the house where they find the blood-soaked paper towels and a belt with blood on it. He cleaned all his clothes and taken off his belt, but the belt still had blood on it. He confesses that he stashed Don's wallet in a McDonald's bag and put it in the trash at the address, which happened to be where he worked, home improvers. <laughs> Good God. And, and, and I don't know, I should add this. Uh, a friend of ours who's just been in Montgomery for school lived in the apartments directly behind that house. Okay. <laughs> I was looking at going, oh, that's where she lived. <laughs> On Sunday, they find that wallet exactly where he was said it would be. Oh, and eight days after she shot, Hanalore passes away. Oh. So now it's two counts of premeditated murder. According to the autopsy, Don, Don died from a severed spinal column. That spent projectile found in the driver's seat was the second shot, a through and through, right chest to left back. 
Hanalore died from a headshot. They recovered the weapon from Linda Norris's house. In fact, the police went to talk to her at two o'clock in the morning. Apparently they liked this AM uh, in, talking to witnesses and such. And she's got the gun at the door. Then she realizes it's cops. She goes, puts the gun up. But when she talks to them and finds out what they wanted for it, she gives them the gun and it has five spent shells in it. Two for Don, three for Hanalore. They also take a hair sample from the car, which is consistent in characteristics with Hook's hair. The blood on the, the belt, the paper towels, the car are all type O. And of course, this is before DNA and blood testing was at the height that it is now. But a firearms and tool mark examiner at the Department of Forensic Scientists testifies the bullet recovered from Don's head, the bullet from the seat behind Hanalore, and the expended cartridge case were all fired from the same 38 revolver, and it was fired from Linda's. And then there is the video and audio tape confession made by Hooks early Sunday morning when he folded. This went to trial in 85. He pled not guilty and not guilty due to insanity. He was found guilty on both counts of premeditated murder, and the jury voted five, uh, seven to five for life with no parole. But the judge overturned it and gave him the death penalty. Oh. So Joseph Bryant Hooks sat on <coughs> death row in Holman Prison in Atmore, Alabama, despite several appeals. One of his appeals actually was based on a claim of suffering from frontal lobe dysfunction, which is the defense used to reserve for juvenile cases. Uh, he was 32 at the time of the crime, but he had pretty much drugged his brain so badly from the point he was a teenager. It did not develop, but they wow. said that's not, that didn't was no excuse for what he did. As yeah. long as you know right from wrong, it doesn't matter. Exactly. And Joseph Hooks died of complications from cancer in August 2016, wow. 32 years after murdering two people and being on death row that entire time. Jeez. Wow. That's the story of my friend Don, my boss. So how did he get the prison concession? He was born and raised in Montgomery, and I think he knew everybody and and probably all the dirt. And he just he thought that was the greatest job he'd ever had. (laughs) I think, like I said, he was a real interesting man. He had real interesting. He was the first person I ever heard of using DMSO. The it, it's a um, delivery system that they use in vets uh, to, uh, veterinarian. Uh, and this was 1984, but you can apply it to your skin, and it's trans. It'll transdermal um, medicine will absorb through your skin with this delivery system. And it was another 15 years before I ever heard anybody else talking about DMSO. But he's in 19. Well, the, excuse me, 1980. He's going to Mexico and he's getting it and he's using it because he's got some arthritis or stuff. You know, he just, he was just an interesting card, but boy, he was a real good manager. And he taught, like I said, he taught me everything I ever know about writing, running a bookstore. It's too bad. Just, it, just hiring a contractor and everything else he did didn't matter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that was the hard luck case that killed him. Yeah. That's too bad because, yeah, he did just another hard luck case that he took in mm-hmm. and trusted. And mm-hmm. that can't destroy the fact that he had all these other hard luck cases that didn't do anything to him. Exactly. You know? But yeah, he gave people a second chance or first chance that, uh, and it wasn't a case of they were criminals and they were, he was reforming them. It's just these are people who probably wouldn't have gotten a job anywhere else, quite frankly. Yeah. I could give you chapter and verse, but they, some of them are still probably with us. And I wouldn't want to embarrass them by 
but they've showed up in a couple of my books. <laughs> <laughs> Southern, it's Southern characters. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and those are always, aren't those always the ones that people say, this character isn't believable. Nobody's really like that. And you're like, you can't make this stuff up. We love our eccentrics down south. We put them on the front porch so everyone can see them. <laughs> <laughs> on their sofa with their goats. <laughs> oh, no, that's just my husband's family. <laughs> that was the most fascinating thing when I went to meet my husband's family in Texas, though. <laughs> we drove up and I was like, wait, I've seen this in movies. <laughs> this is real? <laughs> You've got the sofas on the on the little front porches with yeah. all the blankets and whatnot over them. And his, his uncle lived next door to his grandpa and he had the goat and the goat. He would loan the goat to the grandpa to take care of his lawn. Yep. And bring the goat back. <laughs> there was an extension cord running from his grandpa's house to his uncle's house. And the uncle just used his electricity. Yep. <laughs> the power is whole house. You know, it was, it's fascinating stuff. Someday I will write some stories. Well, you, you know what the Texas philosophy is. <laughs> he needed killing. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh He's yeah. Gonna promote crime in there. He needed killing. I mean, and sometimes it's true. <laughs> We lived there for three years. Oh. oh, did you? Yeah, San Antonio. That's where we moved to right after Montgomery. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my husband's from Gainesville, so it's just a little town up north of uh, yeah. Dallas. So that's as far as I've been. My my dad was stationed somewhere down there. And I can't, might have been near Austin if there's an Air Force base near there, but I never had to live there. I think there was. I'm not sure that it is there anymore. Yeah. But Austin's only about 90 miles north of San Antonio. San Antonio has huge number of bases. Fort San Houston, Brooks Army Medical, uh, Randolph, Lackland. Most everyone goes through Lackland at one point in their life, and that's that's the training base. Now it's Maxwell in Alabama, the training base for a lot okay. of things. Yeah, I think the more modern, the the what desert storm training was happening mm-hmm. in Alabama, if I remember mm-hmm. right. But the Bradley training for the tanks was still happening in Texas, again, for desert storm. That's that's <laughs> or somewhere around there for yeah. friends that I had who went. So it was they've spread it out. But yeah, they stick them down to Alabama in the middle of summer and you're trained for pretty much anything except for the middle of winter in Siberia. So we did that. We were in North Dakota for a year. Okay. <laughs> I laughed at Winnipeg going, we loved Winnipeg. Winnipeg was <laughs> oh. All right. So I will jump in and I'm doing the story of Audrey Marie Hilly. My sources are Murderpedia, CrimeLibrary.com, MarkGribben.com, an encyclopedia of modern serial killers hunting humans by Michael Newton. And I will say that on that Murderpedia, there are some great articles, but they're all listed on that site. So there are other sources that way for people to read. There was one really good article that compiled information from a bu- bunch of books and other articles that I got a lot from. All right. So Audrey Marie Frazier was born in Alabama in 1933 to two factory workers. Different reports said she was from Blue Mountain or Anniston. So from the sound of it, from what I could see is she was actually born in Blue Mountain, which was a rural, more rural area, but it was super close to Aniston. That was a larger city. And that's why some of the articles attributed that to her. Uh, She was well taken care of. She was actually spoiled. Her mother went back to work, I think before, you know, like within a week of having her because, you know, they needed the money. Uh, But her parents made sure that she always had new clothes and she was always, she had more than she needed 
because I guess they, they felt bad for, you know, working all the time and all of this. So at school, she was very popular. She got prettiest girl one year and all this stuff. So when Audrey's 12 years old, she meets Frank Hilly, and he's a junior at the time. In May 1951, while Frank's in the Navy, he's on Navy leave from Guam, actually. He comes back and he marries Audrey. She's 18 years old and she's just finishing up school. So he goes back to Guam, but then he comes back and he goes to California and she ultimately follows him out there. His parents pay for her to come out. And then they live in play. They lived in Boston, Massachusetts for a while. But in November 1952, they have a son. And then in 1960, they had daughter Carol. And psychologists would later come to believe that it was this birth that triggered a change in Audrey. Audrey very much favored their son, Mike. And so Frank, her husband, felt kind of bad about that. So he, in turn, made sure that he spent time with Carol and gave her that attention that her mom wasn't having. And that made things worse because then Audrey was jealous of the time Mike spent with Carol. So it's round and round and round we go. Long before then, though, Audrey had a money spending problem. That's actually why her in-laws had to pay to send her out to California. Frank was sending money to her from his paychecks, and she was just spending it like crazy because she was accustomed to having the newest clothes and to having the newest whatever products, everything, because her her parents had done this for her. And so she just spends and spends and spends and she never has any money. She was also known as thinking she was better than others. She was, she habitually used power plays against fellow employees and she would eventually turn all of her coworkers against her, but her bosses loved her because she made sure they never saw this behavior. And she was a hard worker and she kissed up and everything. So her bosses thought she was great. And so every single job she would leave and she'd say, well, everybody is that, you know, it's a click and they're all against me and all of that. So, but she would find a new job, no problem because she had great references. And again, she was a hard worker for the, for the bosses. She was active in her church and she was fairly well liked by people in the community, but everybody really liked her husband, Frank. He was very trustworthy. He was a hard worker. He was a good guy. Then one day in 1974, Frank came home and he found his wife, Audrey, in bed with one of her employers. Around this time, uh-oh. To add to this, she had been taking out secret loans using his name. You know, she Ooh. would go and all the business people knew her because Aniston was a small town and that's where they were. They were back to living there. And so they would give her the loans. Thinking she was doing it for him while he was at work. Exactly. Oh. And so all these loans come due and he didn't even know they existed. And here's the creditors wondering, well, Frank's a stand-up guy. He's never acted like this before. Why is he not paying us? So all of this hits at the same time. And then in May, 1975, Frank went to his doctor and he said he, oh, he felt nauseous all the time. His abdomen was tender. The doctor diagnoses him with viral stomach ache and he sends him home. He continues suffering, he goes to the doctor again. And this time they admit him to the hospital because it's obviously worse. He's very weak. He's having problems where he's sluggish one moment and then he's very aggressive the next. He's He starts hallucinating and they ultimately say, well, this sounds like liver malfunction. It looks like your liver's malfunctioning. And then they diagnose him with hepatitis. Still in the hospital, he dies on May 25th. Oh, the hospital because it what all went so fast, they want to do an autopsy. Audrey gives them permission and they confirm hepatitis. His kidney and lungs were swollen. His stomach was inflamed and he had pneumonia. His life insurance paid out $31,140, which that now would be over a hundred thousand dollars. So it wasn't a small 
amount, but it also wasn't a vast amount that she could live on forever. Audrey and Carol continue forward. Uh, Mike has grown up. He's off at college when this is happening. Then two years later, Audrey's mother, she became ill. And Audrey has her move in with her. She's got cancer and Audrey is taking care of her. And after her ongoing illness, the mother dies. And the reason on her death certificate is cancer. Audrey then invited her son and his wife to move in with them, which they did. He was an assistant pastor at a local church. And so he thought it would be great to be close to his sister and his mom. And and plus, I can't imagine an assistant pastor makes no. buttloads of money. <laughs> so it was a good opportunity. So he moves in. And then he discovers that his sister and his mom are just constantly fighting. It's this constant tension in the house. They're butting heads. His wife is sick all the time with stomach troubles and she goes to the emergency room multiple times. She ends up miscarrying what would have been their first baby. And Mm -hmm. so ultimately Mike, to get away from this stress, they move out into an apartment, but then right after he and his wife move into an apartment, there's a fire at Audrey's home. And while their house is getting fixed up, they move in with Mike and his wife in the apartment. Sounds like fun. So of (laughs) course the fires are ongoing. There's all these problems. Audrey, for years and years and years, she's claiming that she's getting phone calls, harassing phone calls, that there's a prowler, that somebody's stalking her, all these things. And this is an undercurrent throughout her story. So once the house is ready, Audrey and Carol move back in the home. But oddly, a small fire occurs in the apartment next door to Mike's, causing smoke damage in his apartment. <laughs> and Mike and his wife have to move back in with Audrey in the house until their apartment is ready for moving again. So this continues. There are small fires. Audrey's calling the police all the time. And then, and she's saying she's getting threatening phone calls and there's prowlers. And then her neighbor, a small fire actually occurs in a closet in the neighbor's house. (laughs) The neighbor's getting threatening phone calls and she's calling the police. So the police are over here all the time and they know these two women. At some point, because there are police officers all the time, Audrey apparently was very charming. And one of the police officers falls for her. They have a short-lived affair. Audrey's son moved to Florida with his wife, where they did finally have a healthy baby. Audrey and Carol briefly moved in with them. It's complicated. Audrey, throughout this, Audrey and Carol move in with her aunt and her sister and his sister and, you know, going back and forth. So she didn't seem to have a very consistent home life. But Audrey runs up a significant amount of debt on Mike's credit card, her son's credit card. Then she moves back to Aniston and leaves that debt with him. At some point, Audrey had taken out multiple insurance policies. Two of those were on her kids. So, but she also, she took out some sort of cancer insurance. She took out fire insurance or arson Uh, insurance. uh, uh. She took out life insurance. She has all these policies. In fall 1978, Carol was taken to the emergency room repeatedly with severe nausea and stomach issues. And again, Carol is Audrey's daughter. She was a freshman in college at this time. She ends up having to move back in with her mom, but then she's like, no, I'm going to do this on my own. She moves out into an apartment. Audrey started giving Carol injections. Now they were spread apart, but they, she told Carol that these were from a friend of hers who was an RN and that they were going to help with the nausea, nausea, but they only made it worse. And they keep getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually Carol starts having numbness in her extremities. Her physician had her admitted to the hospital for tests, but nothing came up. Her physician then brought in a psychiatrist thinking she was suffering psychosomatic symptoms. So they switch her over to this psychiatric hospital and that, you know, it's, you know, her dad only died a few years ago. Maybe she's dealing with grief. Maybe it's psychosomatic because he had stomach issues before you died, so on and so forth. 
or maybe because she was just a hysterical woman. Who knows? She remained in the hospital undergoing psychiatric treatment, but her mom continued giving her injections. She would come in and she would sneak them and tell her daughter, don't tell anybody. Audrey said a friend of hers who was, you know, that RN knew what she was talking about. Tests at the hospital now turned up severe malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies. So her symptoms had expanded to include numbness in her hands and feet, nerve palsy, foot drop, and loss of deep tendon reflexes. She's not doing well. She's basically on the brink of death. And so they move her to the University of Alabama, Alabama Hospital in Birmingham. Wow, I can talk today. <laughs> where they worked on an assumption of heavy, heavy metal poisoning. That's what they're thinking from these symptoms. This looks like heavy metal poisoning. Audrey's son, Mike, at this point, he had started to suspect that his dad maybe hadn't died of natural causes. And there's something else going on here because so many people, the aunts, everybody that Audrey has lived with has had stomach problems and little fires and all these strange things. And the family starts talking to each other. Mike asked to have his father exhumed at this point, but he was told he would need a whole lot of proof before they were going to, you know, dig up his dad. In the meantime, the life insurance policies Audrey had taken out lapsed because at that point she had been writing bad checks for them. And this started catching up to her. She was still buying tons of new stuff. She, in fact, when her daughter Carol moved into her own apartment, she had paid to furnish it Oh, with bad checks, bad loans. <laughs> and so people are after her now. And an investigation had begun. And this did end up leading to an arrest for fraud. And around this time, Mike talks to his sister's doc- doctor And the doctor looks because he's like, I really think that there's poisoning involved. And let me tell you, he tells them all about my wife was sick all the time. Her stomach was upset. Everybody has had these stomach issues. There's something going on. And sure enough, the doctor examines her nails and finds Aldrich Mies lines. And these are white lines that can be found in the nails and they indicate arsenic poisoning. So finally, they have something to run with and they test Carol's hair. That's when they discovered she had 50 times the normal arsenic level just on a base test. So her hair was then sent to the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences, and they found levels varying from zero at the end, because her hair was long, to 100 times the normal level close to her scalp. Whatever exposure she'd had, it had been steadily increasing over the last four to eight months is what they determined. An exhumation of Frank's body was ordered, finally, because now they're like, all right, we show that she has clearly been poisoned. And of course, he has equally high levels of arsenic. His cause of death was changed to arsenic poisoning. Her mother was tested and found to have arsenic. So Audrey's mother was tested and found to have arsenic at 10 times the normal level as well. But they still believe that ultimately it was the cancer that killed her. And yet she still had been poisoned, even though she was dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. So here we are, October 9th, 1979. Audrey is still in jail on the fraud charges. And at that point, they go and basically it says they rearrest her, even though she's in prison. They charged her with attempted murder. And that's for Carol. Because they're still doing the testing on Frank's body. In Audrey's belongings, that stuff that she'd left at her sister-in-law's house when she lived there, stuff that's in the home, they find a vial containing what testing showed to be arsenic. I think in the vial, there was some manner of liquid that tested positive for arsenic. Her sister-in-law found something called Cowley's new improved rat and mouse poison in the home that contained arsenic. A pill bottle also contained more arsenic. I think that was in powdered form, but the vial she had 
it turns out she had also given her mother an injection or a couple injections when she was living with her, when she was dying of cancer. So I guess that would be your liquid arsenic. November, 1979, Audrey's mother-in-law died and her arsenic levels are shown abnormally high. It doesn't show that it was ever determined that this is what killed her. Same day that she dies, November 9th, 1979, after Audrey's second arrest, she was released on bond. She changed her name to Emily Stevens, checked into a motel, and then disappeared from the hotel, leaving behind a strange note that indicated she'd been kidnapped. It read, Lane, which was her attorney's name, you led me straight to her. You will hear from me. Her things were spread all over the room like they'd been tossed, but her ID and credit cards were missing and her, there was no cash or anything, even though her wallet was there. Ten days after her release, November 19th, someone broke into her aunt's house, stole women's clothes, stole the car, stole a bag, and left a note saying, do not call police. We will burn you out if you do. We found what we wanted and will not bother you again. January 11th, 1980, Audrey still missing. She gets indicted in absentia for the murder of her husband, Frank Hilly, because they've completed the testing and they're still pursuing this, even though they can't find her. The FBI had launched manhunt. Can't find any trace of her still looking for her. They did track her at one point. She went through uh, Georgia. They tracked her through, lost her trail in Savannah. It would take more than three years of searching for Audrey to see any sort of justice. But the interesting part is what she did in the year she was missing. She fled from Alabama through Georgia to Florida, and under the name of Robbie Hannon, she married a man named John Holman, May 1981. Together, they moved to New Hampshire, but in 1982, she told John she needed to go to Texas to deal with some family business, which included her twin sister, Terry. She also mentioned that she was sick, needed to be seen by doctors down there, and because I wanted to know why he didn't go with her if she was supposedly sick and had this last-ditch attempt you know, to get better. She also said she needed space from him. She mentioned the possibility of divorce. Things weren't good. They were rocky. In Texas, she started going by the name of her supposed twin, Terry Martin. She returned home briefly, but then she asked for a separation and moved to Florida. Under the guise of Terry Martin, she called John and told him that his wife, Robbie, had died and that her body had been donated to medical science, so he shouldn't bother coming down. There would be no service. Then she bleached her hair. And in the time that she'd been down in Florida, she'd also lost weight. She made some other cosmetic changes and she headed back up to New Hampshire. And she went to visit John, told him she was the twin. And the twin consoled John and said, we need each other. You know, we need to heal from this. So moves back in with the husband as her twin and continues this relationship with him for a while. Oh my God, this is a soap opera. It is. It's like, if you don't want to be with him, don't be with him. And if you do want to be with him, you don't have to fake your death. No, you come and back as your own twin. Bleach your hair. Oh my God, does she have amnesia at some point too? No. <laughs> she moved in with him. And Secret so, baby. I guess so. <laughs> he introduced her to co-workers as his deceased wife's twin. But several of them, they didn't buy it. They get suspicious. They don't talk to him about it. They read the obituary that John and Terry had put in the paper and through some investigation on their own, they were able to determine that details were fictitious. For example, the hospital she'd supposedly died in didn't exist, nor did the church she was supposed to have been a member of and where she was buried. So these employees, they get together, they take it to the plant boss and the plant boss looks into it and he's finding the same things as them. He then went to the police. Upon investigating, the police decided that Terry Martin wasn't real and that it was really Robbie 
see, they haven't tracked her all the way back, but they're, they're like, nah, this is his wife. They question her and she ended up telling them who she truly was, Audrey Marie Hilly, because here's the thing. She knew she, she was facing charges back home for the checks, for the fraud. She had no idea that in absentia, <laughs> they were looking for her because of murder, right? An attempted murder. So she thinks that, all right, I'm about to get in trouble for whatever here. I'm just going to tell him who I really am. I'll go back and face the fraud charges. No big deal. (laughs) They extradited her back to Alabama and she stood trial. They convicted her for murder and attempted murder. And they gave her sentences of life and 20 years respectively. So life for the murder, 20 years for the attempted murder. She also underwent psychiatric examination at that time and was found to be deeply troubled, even though her childhood had been a good one. She claimed innocence to the charges and said she had blackouts and memory lapses. And there it is. Uh, See, (laughs) (laughs) I forgot who I really was. Because she was a well-behaved prisoner at Wetumpka, Alabama, they started granting her one-day passes. And in February 1987, she simply didn't return from a three-day visit they allowed her to do. And this visit was to visit with her husband. Because despite what she had done to him, and he truly had believed that she was the twin when she came up there. And despite the fact that she murdered her first husband. Yeah. He actually moved then to Alabama to be near her. Uh, And is right outside of Montgomery. Okay. (laughs) That's one of the other prisons in the area. And there you go. Julian Tutwiler Prison. I'm wondering if it was a, because usually it's an all-female prison. It is. Julia Tutwiler is. Okay. So he moved near her for this three-day visit. The first day they they met up because he wasn't, he didn't live directly next to the prison, but it didn't say where he was. They stayed at a hotel. She spends the first night with him. Then the next day, she says, oh, I want to go visit my family's graves. You know, all those people I took a hand in killing. <laughs> and he goes somewhere. But when he gets back, because she says, I'll meet you at the gravesite. But he comes back. She's not there. She's not at the gravesite. And there's a note. Of course, there's a note. And it says that she doesn't want to go back to prison. Please forgive her. But she can't do it. And she's taken off. Four days later. Someone called in a suspicious person on their porch in Aniston. And when police arrived, they found Audrey drifting in and out of consciousness. Her core body temperature was found to be 81 degrees when the ambulance got there. She had been in the woods for several days in falling rain and temperatures in the 30s. And she was incredibly ill. Nobody knows why, because in her note, she'd actually said, I have somebody who's going to fly me up to Canada you know, they're going to get me away from this. So nobody actually knows if this fell through, if there really was somebody or if there never was anybody. And she just kind of wandered into the woods on the ambulance ride. She suffered heart failure and she ultimately died as a result of the complications of hypothermia that she gotten over those days in the woods, putting pieces together in retrospect. It was found that her children's friends frequently suffered unexplained issues. One of Carol's friends, Sonia Gibson died in 1975 at age 11. An autopsy was done on her in 1983 during all this, but they found only normal levels of arsenic. There were periods of time where she had many affairs, often with her employers, even causing one of them to leave his wife for her, only to then have that affair end. During various times, she lived with family members. And like I said, there were fires, there were phone lines being cut. She had all these crazy, you know, oh, I'm getting these phone calls. And then anyone living with her, stomach illnesses. Police officers, because they mentioned there were always police officers at her house during a certain period, 
when she would call in the prowlers or whatever and police would show up, she always had a fresh pot of coffee waiting for them. And the officers would always end up with stomach issues that night. So she was even randomly now. So the one makes sense. Her husband, right? She got life insurance from him, but all these other people, she was basically poisoning for fun. I mean, with her daughter, yeah, she was probably trying to collect on that life insurance, but she didn't have life insurance on her mother, on her (laughs) aunt, on her mother-in-law, on the police, on the neighbor's children. And she just liked doing this. Ultimately, she died cold and alone on a stranger's porch after poisoning an unknown number of people. Nobody ever know how many people she poisoned. Her record stands at, of course, just one official death and one attempted murder, but she's likely responsible for more deaths and absolutely more attempted murders. What happened to her daughter? Her daughter did live. So she did recover. I mean, once you're not being poisoned anymore, if you don't die, (laughs) then you can improve. (laughs) But yeah, just she never gave a reason because she always denied doing it. When she was under that psychiatric care, she was like, I didn't poison anybody. Well, yeah, because we've talked about poisoners before. And usually it's insurance. Um, it's it's usually insurance. Sometimes it's, I hate to say this, sometimes they're poisoning their children because they just can't take it anymore. Right. You or know, Munchausen's by proxy. Yes. Or they're poisoning their mother-in-law because they can't stand it. But it's yeah. almost always insurance. It's not just for shits and giggles. Right. Or there's a reason. Yeah. Period. Whatever that reason might be poisons the go-to for women to kill people instead of say knifing them or shooting them like men like to do <laughs> strangling them. Takes a lot of strength to strangle a person. Yeah. Successfully. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, that's why she was so interesting. There's just, there's just no reason. And the whole coming back as your twin and moving back in with the husband and then living with him as if you're married. (laughs) Like why? Beyond belief. This poor idiot. When they met, he was, he was freshly divorced too. So this was not a good second marriage. Who knows what his first marriage was like? (laughs) Was it uphill or downhill? Who knows? Well, I think I have a confession. What? I've been into uh, heritage and, doing um genealogy mm-hmm. apparently frank hilly is my ninth cousin nice <laughs> that couldn't have worked out better. <laughs> oh no her just him so we're okay awesome <laughs> up, people you just just never know who you're going to be related to oh the yeah article in the paper today about a woman who was she grew up in an orphanage in pueblo and never knew what her background was. She didn't really know anything about her family. And she told her children not to investigate because she's like, they didn't want me. I don't want anything to do with them. Well, finally, one of her daughters had one of the DNA tests done, the 23andMe or something like that. And she found she had a potential cousin. So she reaches out and contacts this woman or an aunt or something. And so they start talking and she thinks it's a cousin. And it turns out it's her aunt. This is her mother's half sister. Okay. And the, so the mom is able to piece together. They're able to tell her what her background is. They're able to tell her where her people came from and what happened to a certain extent, what happened. Just, just like, I can't even imagine figuring all that out. And, and this woman is older and she's in a wheelchair and she's not in good health. And I'm like, can you imagine having to wait until you're 80 to find out who your family is? 
Yeah, that's one good thing. I do know who all my family are. It's not necessarily a good thing, but I know. (laughs) (laughs) You don't necessarily claim them, but they do exist. That's right. Uh, I will happily declaim some of them. (laughs) Oh, and have. Do you have our list of questions? So we have a question to ask at the end of the episode. Um, Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) It could be. Um, And we want to thank Laura for coming on the show today. Yay. We know full confession. I mean, it's been planned for a couple months now because you sent us the story and we were like, well, how about you just come on the show at some point after we've practiced it with Nikki (laughs) and seeing how that all works. Do we want to do that one or that number one or number two? (laughs) Number two. Okay. Ah. So our question, and yes, we will, when this goes out, we will, we will post it on the web, on uh, the Facebook page as well is what was the first major news story you remember as a child? I don't know what mine was. What was it? Kennedy was shot. Ah. I was on the playground and we'd heard he'd fallen and broken his leg. Now, I don't know how telephone you know the telephone tag oh. at that point then we got back in to class I said no he'd been shot and he was dead I remember that wow yeah I'm I old. missed the challenger explosion because I was in class with somebody who'd gone to school with Krista McAuliffe the teacher had gone to school mm-hmm. with her and they were friends and so oh. we're watching it live on tv it was my second grade classroom and it explodes and everybody just sits there, you know, nobody actually knew what was happening there for a moment. And then she just starts sobbing and runs out of the room. And we second graders are sitting there like, uh, but, but what's happened? Because <laughs> um, I've watched that at that point. <laughs> yeah. And then a little while later, the neighbor teacher, because we had pods in Maryland, mm-hmm. walks over and he's like, so uh, why don't you guys come on over to our pod? <laughs> And we all went over there and he was always a fun guy. So yeah, that was what I remembered. <laughs> and then we later got the explanation, but I mean, we knew that they were friends because she was all excited. And she was like, Oh, Kristen, I think it was college teachers oh, college or something. And she watched her friend die on national oh, television God, in front of us. So. so awful. Yeah. I think for me, it would be the moon landing. Mm. I have very vague memories of it. And I think I, they woke me up. I think I was already in bed because I was little. Mm-hmm. And they woke me up and I remember seeing it on, on the black and white TV because <laughs> I can't remember what the call sign was when they're talking to the astronauts, but it was something related. What did they call it? Snoopy or so, there was, it was some kind of peanuts reference. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I, yeah. I can't remember, but I was so confused because I'm like, I'm looking for, you know, Charlie Brown, but he's not yeah. here. <laughs> Not on the moon. So I I just remember being very sleepy and very confused. That that was me for 9-11 because we had moved in with my parents to pay off some final debts and buy our first house. So we lived there for like, I don't know, nine or 10 months. And my brother had been having trouble with some local little richy rich teens. And so she comes downstairs. I don't remember even what she said, but... It's early in the morning, right? And I was like, what? They're outside? Did you call the police? <laughs> She's like, no, come upstairs. Come up here. I wish I remembered what she'd said. But yeah, and then I go upstairs and then we watch the second tower. But oh. it was so confusing again. Like, what? <laughs> oh, 
I, I guess it wouldn't make sense to be woken up with a plane flew into the, uh, yeah. Because I think she said they're coming, you know, like they're attacking right. us or something. That's what it must have been. They're attacking us. Uh, and I was like, who's they? The teenagers? Young <laughs> <laughs> teenagers? I wish I remembered Mount St. Helens because I lived in Oregon at the time. And I found out I had a memory of it, but I don't remember the clouds. What I remembered was my dad had this, one of those powder blue Volkswagen bugs. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to him one time and I was like, yeah, but when did you have the black one? Ah. And he was like, I never had a black bug. And I was like, yeah, you did. I remember the black bug. And at the time he worked on, I think it's Terwilliger, Terwilliger Boulevard. It's in Portland. Oregon and it's up on a hill. There's a veterans hospital and that's where he worked. It was at the VA hospital as a phlebotomist. And there's also a big learning hospital. It's the big one. We went there a lot for my grandmother, but you know, it's one of those that everybody gets sent to ultimately. And he was working on that hill when Mount St. Helens erupted, covered Ah. the car in ash. And so it was black. (laughs) That's all I remember. I don't remember seeing puffs. I'm a little sad about that. But I wasn't very old. I was like, I don't remember what year it was, but four or five, I think. I didn't know your dad was ever a phlebotomist. Well, he was, when he got out of the Air Force, he was doing that. It's complicated. (laughs) Then he got picked up by the NSA out of the Air Force. because So they they recruited him while he was in the first time. Mm -hmm. I think he went in first time in 71. They had him get out and re-enlist after some schooling. And then they put him into this dedicated Russian program of some sort. So he learned, uh, and I mean, Cold War was coming Mm -hmm. up here, right? So yeah, his, the focus was on getting him trained and he had to learn Russian and know the culture and all of this. And then the NSA would then pick him, picked him up from the air force and took him over there. Did he go to Monterey to the language school? I don't know because we, I was born in California, but he was still, and it was when he, I was born on Travis Air Force Base. So mm-hmm. it's all kind of complicated. I, I've asked that, got parts of the stories, but I never got the full story, you know, mm-hmm. but because it's kind of complicated and there's things you can't tell you. And then, you know, it's yeah. like, it's always, what am I allowed to tell you? But yeah. it was interesting. So yeah, he spoke Russian. That was always fun. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, he never had to go to Russia, but of course he couldn't tell us where it was going. I know that he brought us back a cricket set from England. And I think that's mostly where he was. And it was interesting because I met somebody on this mom's board when I was pregnant with my first child and her father had been in some sort of, you know, British service, like secret service uh-huh. type thing there. And so we always like conjectured whether our parents had met. Ah. <laughs> Maybe. I don't remember, but it was. Well, the thing about Russia is you didn't have to go there. You just had to be on the radio and listen. That's and right. It would be a lot closer in terms of listening. Well, and I will say even in the NSA, my dad was a computer specialist. He actually took part in the uh, DEF CON system, building that at NORAD. So he mm-hmm. had come out here a lot before we moved here because he worked out at NORAD. So that was all, again, there's a lot of things he couldn't tell me about it, <laughs> but, he, so, but he was allowed to say that he had something, you know, he worked with that program at NORAD. Huh. So, yeah. You have to teach him to say, show me the newspaper article that I should read very carefully. Yes, that's right. About things that maybe I should know about is, is read this article. It's interesting. It'll tell you something. Yeah. Yeah. I I went alone interesting. (laughs) (laughs) He did tell me about the rubber duckies and the reservoir in there. He was allowed to tell that. So I had a chance to see them. 
I got a VIP tour of NORAD one time because my husband was a fellow at Harvard and they brought them all out and he was the Air Force weenie in the group. And so he was able to, he'd worked for Space Command. So he was able to get them the uh, VIP tour and it was fat. I got in places I had never knew existed. Everything short at the 26 below um, location of Stargate, you know. Other than that, a lot of stuff. There's now, if anybody's ever curious, R. Lee Ermey, the actor who was, yes. what was he? He was an ex Marine and, and played them all the time because he was really good at that. Yeah, he but good. he has a video where he does a tour of what, you know, parts that you can see. For example, my dad always talks about the springs. He said it's like, you go in there and it's like yes. mobile homes on springs is what it looks like. And sure mm-hmm. enough, that made a lot more sense when I saw the video, mm-hmm. but there is a good one out there that people can watch if they want to see some of the weird stuff. And Nora Joe got yeah. to tour it once with somebody he worked for. And I was like, <sighs> we were going to Jeff. One of Jeff's coworkers was going to get him in here and then nine 11. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I stopped a lot of things. Yeah, it did. And they still weren't doing, you know, just nobody gets to tour it. Yeah. Too bad. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on. People should know that Laura is like the go-to researcher for things. If anybody needs to find something, Laura can always track it down. Her Google foo is very strong. It made me think of that because you mentioned not being able, I think it was, uh, it was something that you hadn't been able to track down more about at a company or something during your story. And I wanted to say, if Laura couldn't find it, (laughs) the information probably does not exist. And yeah. so when I first sent you the story, I had found this one particular picture and uh, uh, a cut line underneath it. And I can't find it anymore. And it was actually this of Don's wedding. Oh. And, and it had uh, uh, Hannah Laura's maiden name, which I have not been able to find. I know her sister. Uh, I, I know uh, her niece's names. But no maiden. my uh, uh, family search org is not giving me a lot of information on family on his, they don't have him married in there. So since have you look, have you looked at grave sites? I think it, what is yes, it? Findagrave.com. I love yes. find a grave. I find all sorts of cool stuff and find a grave. That's how my sister and I found out our great grandfather had a second, had a first family before he had the branch where, and we're like, grandma didn't have a sister. We're looking at She had a half sister. Oh, who knew? And it, like, why? Why did no one ever tell us? It wasn't talked about back then. You know, there's a picture of my grandmother with a random baby. <laughs> you know, you know, it's my grandfather was her second marriage, and he had a daughter from previous marriage. But we've never been able to figure out what this picture with this baby is. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for Thank coming you. on. Thank you everybody for listening. Continue to listen, please. Rate, like, share. <laughs> we get out there and have a good week yes and we will talk to you next week